many of us men sitting here can probably remember that fearful day when we looked in the eyes of the man standing in front of us and asked him if we could marry his precious little girl. Well, if you're like me, you don't remember actually much of it besides the quivering knees, the sweaty palms, the dry mouth. There is one thing my future father-in-law told me that day when I asked for permission to marry his daughter amidst all the threats that I remember. He told me that he had been praying for me before I was ever born. I didn't understand how that worked because he didn't know me before I was born, but he told me that before he even had children of his own, he was praying for their future spouses. I'll tell you, that is at the same time intimidating and inspiring. But did you realize that all of us have been prayed for before we were ever born. In John chapter 17, Jesus is preparing to lay his life down for us. But before he does, he stops for just a moment and he prays for us. Let's read John's account in chapter 17. We pick it up in the middle of Jesus' prayer. He has prayed for his glory to be seen and for the Father to be glorified in the upcoming crucifixion. He's prayed for his disciples for power and for clarity and for safety and for effective ministry. And now in verse 20, he prays for us. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here, Jesus is about to die, about to take upon himself the sins of the world, and he stops to pray for me and for you and for this body of believers gathered here together. What could he possibly think was important enough to delay his journey to the cross? What could be important enough for him to pause as he moved towards the pinnacle of history, the crucifixion, to pray for on our behalf? You'll notice that this portion of the prayer has one overarching request found in verse 21. That they may all be one. Jesus pauses to ask his Father, to bring a supernatural unity to his church. So while the weight of the sin of the world was being placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, our unity was on his mind. What is this unity that Jesus prayed for? What is this oneness that he asked the Father to provide? Well, let's start actually by examining what it's not. It's not ecumenism, which is where we sacrifice doctrine and we sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. 
D.A. Carson wrote, It is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel. In other words, it's not the unity that one lady wrote about in her review of John MacArthur's book, Twelve Extraordinary Women. Several of us bought this book, she wrote on Amazon.com, for a women's Bible study. Our group is made up of many denominations, and we celebrate ecumenical fellowship. This book, however, was very offensive to our Catholic audience. His opinions were offensive and incorrect, especially the chapter on Mary. It has surprised us that such prejudices still exist in the Christian genre. We were able to return all the books purchased and start over with something more ecumenically friendly. You see, this unity is not based on our personal opinions about God. It is based on who God really is as revealed through the word of his disciples. Look at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those, this is us, who believe in me. How? Through their word. We are the ones who believe on Jesus through the word of his disciples, through what God has revealed about himself in this book. That which we have seen and heard, John writes, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, 1 John 1.3. Our unity began when we heard the truth about God conveyed through the word of his disciples and our unity continues based on that truth. Every Sunday morning as I meet in my adult Bible fellowship, I look around and I see an engineer, I see an optometrist, I see a CFO, a software designer, a number of teachers There's no reason for them to sit there every Sunday morning and listen to me unless what I am telling them is the truth about Jesus that we find in the sacred text we hold in our hands. We didn't go to the same colleges. We don't like the same sports teams. We don't all have the same hobbies. But the bond that unites us is far stronger than the bond that unites people of the local country club or those sitting in the same stadium. Because all of us know and we understand that we are sinners, that we are deserving of God's punishment, and all of us are recipients of God's grace because we believed on the word about Jesus revealed by his apostles. So unity is not ecumenism, but what is the unity that Jesus is referring to? Well, it's a unity of relationship. It's literally being ushered into the unity and the relationship of the Trinity. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one. And here he defines one. Even as, or namely as, just like you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 22, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. 
The nature of the church's unity is supernatural because it's modeled and enabled by the Trinity. Just as the Father and the Son are distinguishable, yet perfectly unified, so we too in this body are different. We look different. We have different gifts. We have different backgrounds. But we should be perfectly united in and through Jesus Christ. If there is a river of love that has eternally flowed between the members of the Trinity, as one theologian describes it, then we find our unity with one another by immersing ourselves completely in that river of love. We get so close to Christ that we become drenched with his love and then we cannot help but love one another. I appreciate how Kent Hughes puts it. Our unity, he writes, can be described as an inverted cone with God at the top and believers around the base. As we ascend the slopes of the cone, drawing nearer to God, we draw nearer to one another. At the pinnacle, we touch one another in deepest joy. It appears that the believers in Philippi were having difficulty with infighting, with disagreements and turf wars. And Paul writes to them in Philippians 2, Complete my joy, how? By being of the same mind. By having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing, he writes, from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, I don't think that would have been new revelation to them. I don't think they would have said, really, Paul, you mean we shouldn't fight and argue? We, we really should have humility and unity? But what may have been surprising was Paul's antidote for disunity. He continues in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. He then proceeds to describe how Jesus humbled himself, becoming a man and setting aside those attributes and those, those prerogatives that were his as deity. How he not just came as a man, he came as a servant. And he humbled himself not just to die, but to die the death of a cross. What was Paul's point? It was simply this. If we are to draw closer to one another, if we are to grow in unity with other believers, we must become more like Jesus Christ. Our unity is based in and empowered by Jesus alone. Let me quickly give you four truths about unity. The unity God's talking, Christ is praying for in this passage. First, unity is not a byproduct of discussion and diplomacy, but worship, repentance, and biblical teaching. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They did not grow closer. The church did not grow because they sat around trying to like each other more. But they were commonly committed to the teaching of the apostles and to the worship of God together. Secondly, unity is people from all races, all countries, social circles becoming family members. 
It is me caring for each man in here as if he was my brother. And me treating each woman in here with the respect I would my mother or my sister. We are a family. In fact, Jesus three times in our passage uses the word father. Verse 21, verse 24, verse 25. You and I are brought into the family of God by the work of Jesus Christ. We no longer relate to one another as strangers, but we love one another as family members. Third, unity is each believer bearing one another's burdens, Galatians 6, one, loving one another as Christ loved us, John 13.34, provoking one another not to anger, but to love and good works, Hebrews 11.24. You see, Christ is not praying that we would embrace a concept. He's praying that we would embrace a conduct, a manner of life, that our our lives, our day-to-day living would be marked by unity. When one family member hurts, we don't simply take note of it. We hurt with them. When one sister feels rejected, we accept them. When a brother begins to stumble, we reach down and we help them up. Real unity takes breaking a sweat. It takes effort. It takes living life together. Fourth, unity always moves forward, striving for perfection. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected or made complete, made whole, finished products in unity. See, we must never be content. We must never say we're unified enough. There should be no safer place in all the world for a saint, for a child of God, than the church. Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks wrote, Discord and division became no Christian. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder, but for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. What are you doing to make this body grow in unity? Take a minute and look around you. The people sitting to your left, to your right, in front of you and behind you, do you see them as brothers, as sisters, as members of your family? In what ways are you busy serving them, walking with them, encouraging them all the more as Christ's return draws nearer? Quite honestly, since our unity is found in Christ and is based upon the fact that we have been adopted by the Father into his family, And this unity is really only possible for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you've never repented of your sin and committed your life to Christ, then you cannot experience this unity unless you turn to Him in faith, trusting in His work alone. I want to end our time together by asking, why does this matter? Why does it matter? Let me highlight two results of unity that we see in the prayer of Jesus. First, unity is a powerful testimony to a lost world. This is because real unity is a supernatural work. And so it points to a supernatural reason. Christ lives in us. Verse 21, he says, They may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And then he says, so that. This is a purpose clause. For this reason, the world 
may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that for this reason the world may know that you sent me. It has been said that divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. But the reverse is also true. A unified church reveals powerful, life-changing truths to the world that is watching. It reveals that Jesus Christ actually came to earth, that he was sent by the Father to die on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. Verse 21. Many in Jesus' day and in our day today think Jesus was at best an imaginative teacher, and at worst, he was a lunatic and a liar. Do you realize that the best apologetic for the truth of the Christian faith is a unified local assembly of believers? A church which exists in unusual harmony? You see, we are the visible display of the glory of God, verse 22. Colonial Baptist Church is the visible display of God's glory to this community. Have you noticed that we don't have a photograph of Jesus lying around? You may have seen a drawing or a sketch or an artist's conception, but we don't have a photograph of Jesus because it is us. We are the picture of his glory. There is a, a frame around this body and a sign over top which says, Come and see what God is like. As one author put it, this is the essence of Jesus' vision for the church. It is not a community that heals people just so they will be whole. It is not a community that teaches so that people will be gratified by knowledge. It is not a community that evangelizes so that it will grow its ranks. The church is a community that invites people to touch the glory of God, to be changed by it, and to bear it to the world. When a lost person sees a unified church, there is only one possible explanation. Verse 23, So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. The love of the Father for us, just as he loves the Son, is the only logical conclusion. A group of believers which spans generations and race and gender, all worshiping Christ together and serving one another, will make, Jesus promises, the unbelieving stop and say, God's love is real. We are a billboard declaring to the world that Jesus came to the earth because the Father loved us. The second result of unity is that it prepares us for home. Earlier that evening, Jesus had told his disciples about the home that awaited them. In my Father's house are many rooms, he told them. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be as well. John 14. But now as he prays to the Father, he says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that for this purpose they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me 
before the foundation of the world. We who know Jesus Christ and have been brought into his family are going home. We are going to a home that is unaffected by divorce, that is unmarked by abuse, that is untainted by sin. Why? Because we're going to the Father's house. Johnny Erickson Tata tells a wonderful story about a little boy named Jeff. At the end of a five-day retreat, she said, for families affected by disabilities, a microphone was passed around so all the participants could share a couple of sentences about how meaningful, how fun the week had been. Little freckle-faced, red-haired Jeff raised his hands. We are so excited to see what Jeff would say because Jeff had won the hearts of us all at family reunion. Jeff has Down syndrome. He took the microphone, put it right up to his mouth, and he said, let's go home. Later, his mother told me his dad couldn't come to family retreat because he had to work. Jeff really missed his dad back home. It won't be long until we get to go home. Not much longer and we will forever enjoy the peace and unity that comes from life in the Father's house. In just a little while, we will forever, throughout the ages, experience the uninhibited love that the Father and the Son have shared from before the foundation of the world. But we can begin to experience it here. We can, if we put on the mind of Christ, begin to experience the overflowing joy that comes from life in the Father's house. But until a day when He comes to take us home, let us draw near to Christ. Let's get so close to Him that the fountain of His love pours into our very soul so that we can then turn and we can offer a cold cup of living water to those who are thirsting. How can we invite them to take a drink if it is not obvious that one drink from this fountain changes everything? One drink from this fountain changes our passion. We are now focused on glorifying Christ and the the troubles of this world have lost their power. One drink from this fountain changes our position. We are now part of the family of God. We have brothers and sisters who love us and selflessly serve us and we serve them. One drink from this fountain changes our perspective. We no longer stand proud looking at our own interests but we kneel humbly at the feet of those in our family because Jesus humbled himself for us. And one drink from this fountain changes our path. This is not our home. Look around you. We're not staying here. We're just on a short detour as we head closer each day to life in our Father's house. Will you pray with me? Father, I ask that you will help us to draw close to you through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We're undeserving. There's no reason we should not only have been invited into your home and into your family, but also have done so because your Son 
gave his life on our behalf. But let us each day draw closer to you. Let us, as we do so, draw closer to those around us, viewing them as family, treating them and caring for them and walking through life with them as brothers and sisters. And Lord, we know that your promise is true, that if we do that, then the world will see your glory and the world will say, this is what God is like. Father, as we spend time celebrating the Lord's Supper, I pray that you'll help us to focus our heart and our mind and our attention upon your Son, Jesus Christ. In your name, amen. Amen.